Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, yes, we're less than a week away, and President Donald Trump and Joe Biden, well, they both admit they're looking to snag Georgia come next Tuesday. There aren't a lot of pundits who would have guessed four years ago that the Democratic candidate for president in 2020 would be campaigning in Georgia on the final week of the election. I love Georgia. I love being with you. This is Georgia. This is Macon, Georgia. We won Macon, Georgia. We're going to win it again. It's great to be back in the heart of this incredible state with the thousands of loyal, hardworking, unbelievable American patriots. Thank you very much. We'll hear from Democrats, progressives, and Republicans now that Georgia is really, truly a battleground state. And speaking of the election, there's this. More than three million Georgia voters have officially cast their ballots for the 2020 general election. This total includes early voting and absentee mail-in ballots. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger says Georgia could surpass the four million mark when early voting ends this Friday. And he predicts a big turnout on Election Day as well. And we're expecting still, uh, we will be looking at, say, two, 2 million people show up next Tuesday. So we're looking at about 6 million plus or minus. It'll be a record turnout. That previous record was 4.1 million votes in the 2016 presidential election. And if you're one of those Georgians who plans to vote on Election Day, officials say to double check your polling place before you go. Some locations have changed. For example, in Fulton County, there are 90 more additional polling places than there were back in June. That brings the total to 255 for next week's general election. DeKalb County also made some changes, so make sure you check. They've added about several hundred new polling places. And voters can always go to the Secretary of State's website or call their county elections office to check on their polling place for the general election. Also, polling places are implementing a number of social distancing measures this election season, and we know why. The coronavirus pandemic. This comes as coronavirus infections and Hospitalizations continue to increase here in Georgia. Now the State Department of Public Health says newly confirmed COVID-19 cases were up 15 percent in the week leading up to October 26. That's this week. At the time of this broadcast, 353,372 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed right here in Georgia. Also, 31,256 have been hospitalized, and of those, you're looking at 5,859 that were ICU admissions. And hospitalizations from the disease also rose 7% in that time. Also, 7,844 deaths have been recorded since March. And as always, this is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. This is Closer Look. (music) 
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. After this Friday, Americans will have officially chattered the record for casting early ballots in this presidential election. Yes, we are six days away, and Georgia is getting a lot of attention. There aren't a lot of pundits who would have guessed four years ago that the Democratic candidate for president in 2020 would be campaigning in Georgia on the final week of the election. Atlanta represents the hopes and the dreams and the fight to make real the promise of America. We need to win overwhelmingly, and we cannot do that without you, Georgia. So get out there, vote. I love Georgia. I love being with you. This is Georgia. This is Macon, Georgia. We won Macon, Georgia. We're going to win it again. It's great to be back in the heart of this incredible state with the thousands of loyal, hardworking, unbelievable American patriots. Thank you very much. Now, in 2016, neither President Donald Trump nor Hillary Clinton visited Georgia after their respective primary wins. This year, it's a different travel story. President Trump has already been here three times since the summer. Former Vice President Biden was in Atlanta this week. A Democratic presidential candidate hasn't taken Georgia since Bill Clinton in 1992. And as we're about to hear from Yahoo Finance columnist Rick Newman, Georgia is apparently a toss-up. Georgia? I mean, what's going on there? Um, That's normally a pretty safe red state. Uh, And now we're seeing polls showing that um, Biden might have a chance there. So I'm sure that has a lot to do with, um, you know, changing demographics over time. Um, And Biden is is actually um, putting some money into Georgia. Now, a little later in the program, we'll hear from three conservative strategists and analysts to hear their perspective on this election season. But now we turn to the other side of the aisle. So joining the program, Abigail Colazzo, former Democratic campaign manager and director of strategic communications for Democratic candidates. Alexander Hernandez, co-chair of the Immigrants' Rights Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. Megan DuBose, South Fulton director for the Young Democrats of Atlanta. Abigail, Alexander, and Megan, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Alexander, let me begin with you. You and Megan have been on this program before, but let's begin with this. With all the latest polls and analyst projections and all that, so now we hear Georgia is finally truly a battleground state come next Tuesday. You agree with that, Alexander? Hey, Rose, thank you so much for having me back on, and I'm really glad uh, and happy to be a part of this panel. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with this, and I'll tell you, uh, back during the primary when I was last on, you know, we were talking about we were all in for Bernie at the time, and I wrote a piece after um, reflecting on what went wrong um, in that primary, and in Georgia, I said, you know, a big part was there was not, the groundwork wasn't put there. Bernie, you know, came in too late, which often happens in these presidential elections. Candidates have come in too late uh, at the time for the vote and finally show up to communities. But uh, what I pointed to was folks like uh, Stacey Abrams, which she's been able to do here in Georgia with the, like the new Georgia project, uh, first registering voters and now fair fight and that infrastructure, you know, and that's what we're talking about building with the democratic socialists. We're talking about building that infrastructure that's going to be necessary for this multiracial working class movement to really have a say. And that's what we're really seeing in a shift. And a lot of credit goes to that work. And I think that's why Georgia is in the position that it's in today. Abigail, let me bring you into the conversation. You heard Alexander mention this multicultural, multi-race, this the way that Georgia is shaping out here. But as we know with polls and projections, we've been down this road before, 
how much stock do you put into the polls? Because they've been wrong before. Thanks, Rose. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here and to talk about this. You know, look, I think polls give an indication of what's of what's going on, what the potential is. But at the end of the day, nothing matters more than turning out voters and who's actually showing up at the polls and getting their votes counted. So I think the fact that the polls have remained relatively steady over the past few weeks and months shows that Georgia absolutely is a battleground state this year. Um, and it's at this point, you know, a lot of folks I know, we're not looking at the polls anymore. Mm. You know, we are looking at uh, lines. We are looking at the counts of Democrats and Republicans who are turning out in record numbers this year. So when you get this close to an election and folks are starting to cast their ballots, right, and to talk to their friends, the polls become less important. And the energy and enthusiasm that you literally see daily on the ground is what makes the difference. And that's how we know that Georgia is a battleground. It's not just because of the polls, although the polls are a good indication. And that's why Donald Trump is spending so much money in a desperate attempt to keep this state that is rapidly uh, flipping towards Democrats. It's because they're scared. It's because they see what we see, but not just in the polls, but on the ground, too. Megan, you heard Abigail talk about the energy and the enthusiasm probably overtakes whatever the polls or projections may indicate you work specifically because it says you know with director for the young democrats of atlanta is there energy and enthusiasm that you think will help propel biden and harris to get georgia absolutely and thank you so much for having me on um it's clear to um to voters right now how important it is to get to the polls we already have three million voters that have already cast their ballot and 29 percent of those voters are from the ages of 18 and 24 and that's major the young democrats of atlanta we're doing work on the grounds um the college dems are making sure that they are getting to the right precincts and casting their ballots um and making sure that we are going to keep that energy out from early voting all the way to november 3rd and so we're really looking forward to uh, making sure that we're talking to voters about key issues in georgia and it's really evident that the um the candidates that are running now they really represent um, the population of voters that are coming out to the polls right now well let's dissect the demographics of the democratic voter or maybe even the voter that's not necessarily 100 percent democratic alexander i'm gonna let you start this conversation because we've talked about this before but has biden sent a clear enough message to progressives to garner their support well frankly i think you know the last debate i saw uh, biden did say a lot of key things that were were welcomed uh you know he he's he positioned himself where he wasn't embracing fracking anymore and sort of embraced this idea of we're going to transition off of fossil fuels which was good but frankly i think we're in a point where we know what's at stake uh we know another four years of the uh, the impeached president trump would be uh you know could put see the end of this uh democratic republic that we have here so uh we have no choice but to support this guy right now and then we're gearing up the the dsa nationally and locally we're gearing up to what's the first 100 days going to look like but we're not taking anything for granted turnout is key right we got six more days to make sure that up and down the ballot uh i mean we put out uh voter guides about highlighting things in particular locally there's a voter guide about the uh ballot initiatives and those questions that are often overshadowed not seen but we're making sure that we're reaching out to voters who aren't your average, you know, they don't turn out every election, but mm -hmm. we know that they've turned out maybe for Bernie in the past. So if they turned out for him, we got to make sure, hey, you got to turn out because the stakes are so high. And have you checked out these other initiatives that are here that, you know, that we we, we have to pursue? And it's, it's a multi-layered, multifaceted, long-term approach that we're looking at. 
But at the same time, we know the stakes couldn't be higher. And we have six days. Uh, I mean, I'm on dialers every day. I'm sending out texts. I'm making calls. You know, so we have to make sure people turn out because uh, six days is the start of the next 100 days, essentially, mm -hmm. is how we're looking at it. If you're just joining the conversation, I'm joined by Abigail Colazzo, Alexander Hernandez, and Megan DuBose. And we're talking about the Democratic strategy for winning Georgia come next Tuesday. And a little bit later in the program, we'll head to the other side of the aisle to hear from folks as well. Abigail, let me get your thoughts on this because as someone who worked with Democratic candidates as well, look, enter this number 16, which is in terms of electoral votes along with Michigan. Georgia has the eighth highest allotment in the nation. But Outside of this region, the Atlanta region, with, with the big counties, Fulton, DeKalb, Gwinnett, maybe Cobb, you know, Clayton, those always tend to go Democratic. It's always been how do the Democrats get that support outside of this Atlanta, maybe this 13-county Atlanta region? Because you don't have to win those counties. You just win the rest of the state. And that's been the success for the Republicans. Yeah, well, I think, look, this year is, is different. And one reason is because I think, like Alexander had pointed out, you know, Folks on the ground here, particularly organizations that are largely led by people of color, have been putting in the work for, for decades to engage folks, not just in the Atlanta region, right, but also in some of the rural counties. And I think for the, the last few years, you know, particularly beginning with Stacey Abrams' campaign in 2018, and now the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party of Georgia is building on that work to engage folks, not again, not just in Atlanta, but also in the suburbs you're looking at rapidly diversifying areas like Cobb and Gwinnett, you know, and to really engage in, in the rural areas. Look, when Biden came to Georgia, you know, this week, he didn't just come to Atlanta, he went to Warm Springs, mm -hmm. right? The campaign is is working uh, around the state to engage voters in, in every corner, in every county. And that's work that doesn't just happen overnight, right? You don't sort of just start that campaign a couple weeks out and, and this, you know, people talk about the state flipping, which I always think is kind of funny. You know, it, it's been a long process and a long time coming. So they definitely do need to uh, hold down the margins there, but there's a lot of room for growth in those areas and a lot of voters there who are close to the pain that you know, has been inflicted by this administration. Uh, these are areas where rural hospitals have been closed, right, where the economy is decimated, where you know, families are struggling. So, you know, they know what's going on, what the Trump administration has done, and they, they will turn out if we talk with them. And that's, you know, why there's been so much focus, I think, on engaging communities of color um, and, you know, some of these white suburban folks, you know, in these rapidly diversifying suburbs, um, you know, to, to take a real careful look at the choice, the selection, um, and to cast their ballot for, for Biden-Harris, who are going to make a difference in their lives. Megan, you heard Abigail talk about communities of color. Obviously, when we talk about one of the biggest issues, of course, is the coronavirus pandemic, and we know it has disproportionately affected folks of color. But this was also a year of protest regarding police killing of black Americans. As you engage with young black voters, have they given you any sense of they feel that the Biden-Harris ticket will address these issues? Both sides have said we want to address it, but they both have a different plan, a different pathway to addressing that. What are you hearing from young folks of color? Absolutely. I feel like this time, more than ever, um, black and brown voters are coming out to the polls because they know um, why they need to hit the pavements, not only um, to knock on doors and to get their voices heard, but they see the impact and the repercussions when we have an administration that doesn't only not represent us, but doesn't respect our voice 
and we're implementing um, resources to like texting and phone banking so we can get out the vote and, and encouraging voters that their vote matters, which it does. And they're really excited because they're going to be voting down ballot, not only for the presidential um, candidate, but also for local officials like their state house representatives, like their senatorial races that are going on. And it's they feel really empowered right now. Um, and they feel like they can really make that difference that they want to see in all communities. Well, Megan, let me stay with you then, because also there are some other races, obviously, on the ballot. But are you all all focusing on some of the Congress? We got look, we got two Senate seats that are up here. So have you all been focusing on making sure people are fully engaged and informed about it's not just the for the White House, but let's look at how we can also for the Democrats through their lens, how we can also you some just say flip or turn whether it's the Georgia General Assembly or Congress you all been talking about that absolutely Abigail said it um, great Uh, we know that Georgia has been blue for a very long time and flipping Georgia blue it's basically making sure that these voters are coming out I mean like I said before 29 percent of um, voters right now in Georgia are 18 years and 24 in that demographic and they're really excited because they know that um how you really um, make your voice heard is electing state house representatives that will go to the Capitol and write legislation that would empower um, black and brown people, but also the Democrats that are making sure that everybody has an equal chance um, to really make it in Georgia. And that's what we haven't been saying. Alexander, let me ask you this, because we even heard this morning from our colleague Emma Hurt in the WAB newsroom that the Republicans are even spending money on a particular local race here because they feel that if this is a red state, that they should control not only the state government, but also the the state house. What do you make of the Republicans spending so much money, I think a million dollars in a local race? And I believe that was District 132. You know, I think the fact that uh, Republicans are spending that much money in what was conventionally seen as a red state goes to show where they're at. I mean, uh, one thing that I'm thinking about right now with that question was uh, last time we were on, I think it was right when uh, Kelly Loeffler had been appointed, you know, though uh, our senator who is lucky and fortunate enough to be a senator and have privy to do a sort of insider trading that's all insider trading, but in name only, but it's something that people in Congress can get away with but you and I couldn't. So we weren't you know, talking about her and how all of a sudden the Republicans are all in on her because of the, the suburban woman demographic. That's all they were talking about. And that's gone to the toilet. That just sort of shows how that approach is sort of going away where they're trying to divvy up the, the every single piece and pin people against each other. That's sort of the old GOP approach for hundred odd years now. So what we're seeing, at least what we're trying to do in DSA is connect the dots and say, hey, this struggle, your struggle is my struggle and my struggle is your struggle. And let folks know that once we connect that, that we realize that we're fighting for the collective good in a way that we have the decisions. You know, working folks are have agency in their own lives. Uh, it sort of changes the, the dynamic and they're, they're, getting, they're losing sight of that. So that old guard is going away we're sort of in the mix of what's going to replace it now, right? And that's sort of the, the big question. But but we're seeing the last breaths. I thought, you know, I was praying 2016 was the last of it with, you know, but, uh, you know, we all woke up. And I think uh, that's a testament to the energy we're seeing. It's like, that's why you saw any, any adult 2020 or those bumper stickers. That's sort of the feeling because it's less about Biden. I mean, Biden is the person who's going to get us there. And then it's about a mass movement pushing him to get what we want, which is 
healthcare, which is education, which is, you know, we get off fossil fuels finally because we don't need it. And it's way cheaper to do otherwise. And it's just these we're stuck in these old um, diet, you know, old conversations that don't make sense anymore. It's like we have the money to live life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Like we have the resources to do that for all of the folks in this country mm-hmm. and we should. Well, Abigail, we've talked about black voters. We talk about young voters, but they're here in Georgia, being that is a a heavily populated rural state. We also have to consider the middle class vote here. How do you see this shaping out? Will we see more of the rural community show up for the Biden-Harris ticket or will it be the, the same traditional? And farmers, too. I talked to a farmer yesterday. This pandemic and also trade issues as it relates to getting their commodities and products that they've been impacted by that. How do you see the Biden-Harris ticket being successful in getting some votes in the rural population? Well, you know, I think a lot of this actually goes to the the issue you all were just talking about, actually, uh, which is some of the down-ballot races. You know, the Biden-Harris team is is putting in the work now, but a lot of this energy and enthusiasm, even outside the traditional metro Atlanta area, is going to come from the energy behind some of the spectacular candidates uh, that Megan was talking about, who we are putting up at the local level. And we're talking about, you know, Mark Arnett down in Sumter County. We're talking about Regina Lewis Ward. You know, we've got a chance to take back the state house here in Georgia, which would be huge. We only need to flip 16 seats. And that's where a lot of the energy I think you'll see is because people know, you know, and we've certainly seen in, in the last four years what an impact the federal government makes, but they also know what an impact their local representatives make. So. You know, I think it's not just going to be about the impact of a, a Harris, you know, Biden-Harris ticket and, you know, oh, are they flooding the airwaves? But it's the organizing, organizing that's happening on the ground at the very local level that the party has invested in, that they're putting up candidates in every one of these competitive seats around the state. And you're going to see, I think, actually an upstream impact mm-hmm. with folks turning out to elect their, you know, local representatives to flip the state house, And that's going to have an impact on the two Senate races, which are critical and the only ones in the country and the presidential. As we wrap up, and Abigail, let me stay with you. You start off this answer. Is there a demographic that you all think the Democrats have not done a very good job of reaching or sending the message that they have that group's concerns aligned with everyone else's? Abigail? You know, look, there's always more to be done. You know, I think um, this particular year, I've seen a lot of energy and enthusiasm for the Biden-Harris ticket with the uh API population, the Asian American folks down here and the Latinx population, particularly in counties, again, right, like, uh, like Gwinnett and Cobb, et cetera. So I would love to see, you know, increased investments and, and sort of sharing the love back with these communities that are really doing the work on the ground. So there's, there's always more to be done. Like uh, Alexander said earlier, you know, we're still six days out. These are not communities and in places like the Deep South where folks take anything for granted. We know we have to fight for literally every single thing. So no one's taking anything for granted here. No one's resting on on polls or you know a, a little money here, a little money there. So they've they've just got to to keep up the energy, keep up the investment, um, and you know keep up the momentum down here. And then I think we are going to win. Alexander, is there a group that you think the Dems could have done a better job of reaching and, and hitting those issues of that group? No, absolutely. I think in particular with the the Latino community, uh, what what we see is that. If you invest in our communities early on, there's a huge return. I mean, in terms of if you start talking to the communities, uh, Latino communities, like six months or so before an election, as opposed to right as the you know as it's things are heating up, uh, then you'll connect with folks. 
in a way that that's genuine, right? You're, you're hearing from them and responding to their their needs. And the, the big payoff is when, uh, you know, your abuela goes out to vote, the entire family goes out to vote. So that's one thing that folks are, are you know, we're hearing all about this, this white suburban voter the entire election season. And if we just put a little bit of that money that's been put on that demographic just to to that, it would pay off dividends. And I think folks are really seeing that. I think uh, Bernie proved that in Nevada during the primaries. And I think folks are learning from that and of the way that they ran their campaign where the the there, there wasn't like a whole, oh, here's the Latino department. It's like, no, you're integrated in the main campaign. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's key. And if folks start thinking that way, it's like, no, 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 our struggles are intertwined. Don't don't put us off in another room where, where you forget about us. So I think that's sort of and people are clicking on it. It's just, you know, there's the old consultant class that's still around and the old money class. So it's it's a lot of tensions going on and we'll see how things settle. But the, the, these next 106 days are going to be crucial. Megan, what about you? A group the Democrats could have done a much better job of trying to reach? I understand um, being a part of um, the black and brown community. Minorities have been frustrated with what's been going on in America for generations. Mm -hmm. And um, like Ab Abigail said, there's always can be room for improvement. And understanding the, the type of like structure that the Democratic Party has, there's other organizations that are putting forth um, a lot of efforts to touch um, black and brown communities and understanding the importance of really getting out the vote. And I think the Democratic Party is doing a great job, like the Young Democrats of Atlanta, to make sure that they're um, being inclusive, um, to highlight the frustrations of the voters and encouraging voters like Ebony Carter, who's writing in House District 109, who's a millennial, who's um, a woman of color. And she's speaking up for a demographic of people that are misrepresented when um, people are running to, for office. And so highlighting how we can uplift the community, we do that um, every day. And um, I'm, I'm really excited that we have this opportunity to push candidates like um, Ebony um, Carter Ford as well. Abigail Colazzo, former Democratic campaign manager and director of strategic communications for several Democratic candidates. Alexander Hernandez, co-chair of the Immigrants' Rights Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. Megan DuBose, South Fulton director for the Young Democrats of Atlanta. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank so, you so much. Thank you so much again. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. After this Friday, Americans will have officially shattered the record for casting early ballots in this presidential election. Yes, we are just days away. And Georgia is getting a lot of attention. There aren't a lot of pundits who would have guessed four years ago that the Democratic candidate for president in 2020 would be campaigning in Georgia on the final week of the election. Atlanta represents the hopes and the dreams and the fight to make real the promise of America. 
We need to win overwhelmingly, and we cannot do that without you, Georgia. So get out there, vote. I love Georgia. I love being with you. This is Georgia. This is Macon, Georgia. We won Macon, Georgia. We're going to win it again. It's great to be back in the heart of this incredible state with the thousands of loyal, hardworking, unbelievable American patriots. Thank you very much. In 2016, neither Donald Trump nor Hillary Clinton visited Georgia after their respective primary wins. This year, it's a different travel story. President Trump has already been here three times since the summer. Former Vice President Biden was in Atlanta this week. A Democratic presidential candidate has not taken Georgia since Bill Clinton in 1992. And now, as we're about to hear in this clip from Yahoo Finance columnist Rick Newman, Georgia is apparently a toss-up. Georgia? I mean, what's going on there? Um, that's normally a pretty safe red state. Uh, and now we're seeing polls showing that um, Biden might have a chance there. So I'm sure that has a lot to do with, um, you know, changing demographics over time. Um, and Biden is is actually um, putting some money into Georgia. Well, earlier in the program, we heard from some Democratic uh strategists and analysts. And now we turn to the other side of the aisle. I'm joined by Eric Tannenblatt, Global Chair of Public Policy and Regulation at Denton's Law Firm, Julianne Thompson, President of the Atlanta-based MSN Strategies and longtime political analyst and strategist, and Corey Ruth, CEO of Mergence Global, an international consulting firm. Julianne, Corey, and Eric, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Julianne, let me begin with you because you you and Eric and Corey, y'all know that when it comes to polls and, and analyst projections, and now they're saying that Georgia is a battleground state come November 3rd. Julianne, you buy into that? Well, I think one thing is for certain, and that is Georgia is no longer a flyover state. Um, Georgia, things are different in 2020. Georgia is up for grabs. It is a battleground state. There is no doubt about that. Um, I think what's different in 2020, things have been changing rapidly over the past 10 years here in Georgia. Um, the demographics are changing, we're becoming more diverse, um, but the parties are very, very focused right now. They're spending a lot of money. The, the amount of money that's being spent by campaigns right now is unprecedented in politics. And I, you know, I think the biggest change now in 2020 is that 2020 has become this perfect storm for, for the strangest political year in history. I mean, with the pandemic, with the, with the civil unrest, everything that has happened has changed people and has changed their motivation to become more involved in politics and head to the polls. So. I, I think that most certainly the pandemic is coming into play with regard to getting people to the polls. And also the Secretary of State here in Georgia has really, really made uh, made a campaign effort really from, from the Secure the Vote campaign in the state of Georgia to get people uh, to do early voting, to get people to do absentee voting, to make sure that people are protected um, and don't have to wait in the long lines or be exposed uh, to potentially dangerous situations because of the virus. So mm -hmm. I think that that has driven a lot of the early voting and the absentee balloting. Uh, but yes, George is definitely in play. Eric, let me bring you into the conversation. Do you put much into these polls and early projections? But as Julianne just said, George has been changing anyway. 
No, you, you sort of you saw the trend over the last uh, several years and with the increased in registered uh, voters, uh, you know, we we're a growing state and we have a lot of people that are moving from other parts of the country uh, to Georgia and in particular to the Atlanta uh, region. And uh, the demographics have changed dramatically. I think Julianne is spot on. Uh, plus the, you know, the climate in the country with, you know, what the country's faced with the, um, the pandemic and, and as Julianne pointed out, the social unrest. Um, and then we also have some unique uh, political uh, races in, in Georgia that's playing into this too. I, the early retirement of Johnny Isaacson in the special election, this jungle general um, I think has also added an interesting dynamic because you have uh, two Republicans that are almost running a they're running a primary campaign in the general election, and you know that that's typically what you know is reserved for the primary, and then you move into a general, and so I think that's added to the dynamic too, and so I think we're going to have some very uh, close races. Corey Ruth, both Julianne and Eric talked about, yes, Georgia, the demographics have changed. Um, are we seeing folks of color, black Americans, are we seeing a little bit of a appeal f- to the Republican Party from black Georgians at all? Well, I think that uh, African Americans have uh, felt for so long that our interests are very narrow and, and we um, did not expect that we could um see broad um, consensus built around just African-American issues. And and because of that, we've given a lot of politicians a pass, particularly the Democratic Party, um, including, you know, our first African-American president. And so we haven't seen a lot of movement on, um, let's call it a black agenda, things that are specifically designed, policy specifically designed to move uh, black America forward. Under Donald Trump, he has been a surprisingly strong champion for African-American issues, whether we blame it on Donald Trump or his daughter Ivanka or his, his, uh, his uh, son-in-law, um, uh, Jared Kushner, um, you know, Van Jones, uh, Ice Cube, or just some of the folks that we know are real um, strong uh, principled guys that point out that whether it's criminal justice reform or police reform, which he did by executive order, or the support for HBCUs, a billion dollars to HBCUs just for the pandemic relief. Um, Opportunity zones with $75 billion have been invested in black communities. I think at a social media level and at a uh, culture level, uh, African-Americans are becoming aware of this. And the contrast is on the other side of the aisle, um, by some twist of fate, the Democrats have uh, nominated the guy who wrote the 1994 crime bill, which is why African-Americans are marching in the streets right now with Black Lives Matter. But he also authored another bill in in the 80s that made the distinction between crack cocaine and, and cocaine. And we saw higher sentences for, for um, black and brown folks and for poor folks um, who uh, had addiction, my father included. And so I think that African-Americans are starting to see that um, they might need to pull their loyalty away, not necessarily throw it to the Republicans, but pull it away from uh, the party that they have for so long counted on to fight for their causes. And, and, and we may see that in, in turnout numbers. 
Well, Corey, let's stick with you as we talk about specific demographics here, because you pointed to, and we've heard this before, several initiatives that people credit Donald Trump for. But when we talk about that crime bill, and I want to focus on that for a moment, because is it fair to use that when there was so many other folks that voted for that? Is that a fair messaging to send to black Americans without fully giving more context about that crime bill? And the opportunity zones, with depending on whom you ask, are not benefiting black businesses. That's another segment. But so, how do yeah. you counter that? Because we've heard that before. Yeah, and I can appreciate that. Um, I, I'm thinking more from uh, the political effect of it, right? That um, we had eight years of um, Joe Biden as a vice president. We had the first African American president. Um, we still have not had a president who is a descendant of American slaves, but even still, we had a real brother in the White House, if you would, who cared about our community and cared about our population. I think because we felt that our our interests were too narrow, and I think maybe he felt that way as well, it was hard to kind of push those issues forward. Donald Trump is very unorthodox, and so he's pushing a lot of those um, interests forward. He's working with folks like Van Jones across the aisle. So the question is, how does that look when you're on um um breakfast the breakfast club how does that look when you're on social media and you're seeing uh killer mike um and ice cube um sending stuff out that that talk about these things i think at a at that level at the culture level and how it's going to impact turnout you know i've i've seen non-political african-americans um you know sending um social media uh memes and statements about Kamala Harris and about Joe Biden, that if I was a Democrat strategist would really, really concern me. And I'm just seeing it at a cultural level in a way that I've never seen before. Julianne, when it comes to the Republicans and their strategy in terms of attracting and appealing to non-traditional GOP supporters, whether it be, how would you assess here in Georgia what what Trump and, and the Pence ticket need to do to garner that support? What's the strategy here for the GOP? Well, I think that one thing that the Republicans have been doing uh, over the past four years, which is which is really smart on the part of the Trump campaign, is the fact that there is no group, there is no state, uh, there is no subject that is off limits. They have made it very clear that they are going to try to recruit as many votes as possible and not just traditionally Republican groups, but to reach out to all groups. Um, I think Corey was spot on in everything that he said. And the reason why it, it felt so substantive coming from Corey is because Corey is the right messenger. And I have said this before, I've said this for many years as a woman, I'm a suburban woman, I'm a suburban mom. Um, so I understand and women feel. I understand what they need to hear. And, you know, as a Republican who is involved in messaging myself, I'm the right kind of messenger to appeal to suburban women. And I think what we have done in the past as Republicans, especially with regard to women, we've, we've had a lot of empty headed messaging, number one. Um, and I think that that's been replaced by a lot more substantive messaging, like what Corey just talked about. Um, but with regard to women, and specifically suburban women, since they are going to be 
the demographic that is deciding elections here in the state of Georgia and really around the country, not just in this election, but for many elections to come. Um, it is important to understand the issues that are important to women, but not just the fact that women are not monolithic in our thinking, not just the fact that there are just as many pro-life women as there are pro-choice women, but it's important to realize that women are attracted to not only a message of hope and a message that it is full of substance that will affect their family, that will affect their children, but women want to hear from messengers that they feel they can relate to. When, when Democrats used to talk about the war on women, a lot of times Republicans would send out men to go out there and to, in the media and say, oh, there's no war against women. That's ridiculous. This president has done this for women or that for women. No, that is not the right messenger. You may have the right message, but it needs to come from a strong conservative woman, just like the message that you just heard from Corey came from a strong African-American man who has experienced exactly what he just spoke about. So it's not just the message, but the messenger. Well, Julianne, let me stay with you for a moment. And Eric, I'll get to you in a second, because when we talk about, you mentioned the suburban woman voter, but I think also to be clear too, because when people talk about suburban white women and you talk about the messaging, when President Trump sends a message talking about low-income housing, some view that, forgive this term, as a dog whistle, as some type of ulterior messaging, you know, Eric knows, Corey knows, you all know what that messaging, how that's going to be perceived. How do you all counter that? I think you make a very, very good and valid point. And I think that it's important to remember that when we're talking about the suburban female vote, we're not just talking about white women. Um, I, The cul-de-sac that I live on is the most multicultural shot of America that you can possibly imagine. We're the only white family on our cul-de-sac. And uh, I mean, we have um, Arab Americans who are of Muslim, uh, who are the Muslim religion. We have Chinese Americans, African Americans, and a Mexican American family all on our cul-de-sac. And this is a snapshot of America. This is what suburban America looks like. and we need to understand that when we are doing that messaging. And I agree with you. I, I don't like terminology um, like low income housing or do you want the projects next door to you? I don't think that that's the right message. And mm -hmm. I don't think that that sits well with suburban women, not the women that I talk to most certainly. Um, obviously it, it, no one at the national level is consulting me on what is being said at rallies, but <laughs> I, I think that it is important, like I said, to understand we have to have the right messengers out there and we have to make sure that our message is getting through, not just to the traditional Republican voter, but to every single voter because people are substantive and they care about the economy, they care about jobs, they care about national security and a bright future for their children. And we need to understand that everyone cares about their family the same way. And so when we are messaging and we are talking to those people, we need to understand the power of words. Eric, you know that although those 16 electoral votes may not seem like a lot to some people, those 16 votes, now that Georgia is a battleground state, but 
Traditionally, we know that outside of maybe Fulton, Cab, Gwinnett, uh, Cobb took some time, obviously Clayton County, when you get outside of this Atlanta region and you have the rest of the 100 and some counties, the Republicans have not really focused on the Atlanta region. Is that the same strategy now? Well, uh, in the in these final days, it, it, it appears that that's the case. But um, I, I think that's been a challenge for the Republican Party uh, in recent years. You saw that in the last gubernatorial election. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if the Republican Party wants to stay the majority party in the state, and this is not something that I haven't said for the, you know, the last you know 10 years, is that you've got to address the changing uh, demographics. And there's a reason why President Trump went to Macon, Georgia, uh, when he last visited, because we're at the end of a campaign and you want to energize your troops, just like there's a reason why Vice President Biden was in Atlanta yesterday. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we gotta, we're so divisive right now and we're playing to our base. We got to get beyond that. And, and you know, failure to do that is, has made Georgia as competitive as it, as it is today. Let me get your thoughts on this. I want to stay with you, Eric, because, of course, one of the biggest issues has been this coronavirus pandemic, which continues and how the Trump administration responded. You think this might have led to a loss of support for President Trump at all? Well, there's no doubt that the coronavirus has uh, touched, you know, everybody, you know, whether you had a family member, friend, neighbor that actually contracted to the the disease or your, your business was affected or you have a child that goes to school. So it, it clearly is not something that you can just sort of gloss over and say everything's fine. You know, uh, we've turned the corner, and and I think you're you're seeing that uh, around around the country. Um, I, I think that that is a is a big factor among certain demographic groups too, in particular women, and in particular suburban women. And we have a suburban woman woman on 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 this uh, program. And I'd love to get Julianne's uh, take on that. But, you know, women uh, are very concerned about their family and, you know, the household uh, economics and kids that are at school. And I think that that uh, that is having an impact. I should also add, too, as Julianne was describing uh, where she lives in her cul-de-sac, it actually is a great. Um, example of the changes in Georgia because she also lives in Gwinnett County. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, pro- that county has probably seen more changes in the last decade than from a demographic standpoint than, you know, most counties in the state. But what's also interesting, too, about Gwinnett County, while the, demogra- the demographics have changed in terms of the population, it has not been represented um, in terms of elected officials. Oh, it's changing a little, but it's it's been slow. Well, before I get to Corey, Julianne, respond to what Eric said in terms of you said that suburban women will be the deciding factor for this upcoming election. You mentioned the women in your cul-de-sac. Have y'all had conversations about this? What are you hearing? Well, it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> um, most certainly, most certainly, like, like I said before, women are not monolithic in our and we are very concerned about this pandemic. We're very concerned about the safety of our families. We're very concerned about how it affects us economically. I can tell you um, that the women that I talk to want their children in school. 
as the mother of, I mean, I have a 16 year old son who is, you know, still school age and he, uh, he doesn't learn as well remotely. I mean, there's no doubt about that. One of his classes is Latin. And uh, when he was actually in class, he had an A when he switched to remote learning because of the pandemic, his A went down to a C. And I think that that is one thing that is very important to women is the whole educational of how their families are being impacted um, by COVID. They want their children back in school. Corey, let's talk about two things I want to get your, your take on. First, let's talk about getting Americans back to work. Here in Georgia, when we talk about the economy, we cannot leave out Georgia's farmers, producers, and the agricultural industry because that's so big here in Georgia. The closure of rural hospitals, obviously connectivity issues, support for these farmers. Have they done enough? Has the Trump administration done enough? Or have they failed in some regards as well? Yeah, my family owns a farm in South Georgia. We have about 200 heads of cattle down there. And, and so uh, the, the issue of farming is very dear uh, to me. And, I, you know, look, I think we're in the middle of a uh, restructuring of globalization. Mm-hmm. And that is being led by Donald Trump. But let's make no mistake about it. There's a lot of folks in the West, a lot of leaders in the West um, who might not be as vocal as Donald Trump that want to see this restructuring of globalization. And, and uh, it's going to have some um, immediate impacts on farmers. It's going to have some immediate impacts on things like manufacturing and energy. And um, and, and that's something that I think more than anybody else, farmers are, are probably really feeling. I think the Trump administration have tried to sort of back, uh, excuse me, gap fill with, um, with you know, forms of subsidies uh, to the farmers. But um, I think that overall, he's gonna have the support of farmers because they see um, sort of what the overall agenda is. And they also understand how that's helpful for them. So many issues that we just couldn't get to because of time, but Corey, as we begin to wrap up, is there a group though, that you feel the Republicans have not sent a strong enough message or even made a strong enough attempt to speak to or to garner their support? You know, Donald Trump is is such a unique candidate. And um, I've had, you know, Eric Miller, I've been on the other side of his desk, uh, you know, a lot during the last decade, just, you know, talking about this issue. I think Trump ironically has done a good job with Hispanics. He's done a good job with African-Americans. When I say good job, I mean better than the average Republican nominee, right? Um, and in this case, better than the Democrat nominee. So, you know, Don, uh, Joe Biden is relying on, you know, the ghost of Democrats past to, to get African-American support out. Um, but I think that if there was a group, a single group that I think um, some effort could have been made to um, I think, you know, white women, I think uh, I, I heard Donald Trump in a rally recently saying, you know, suburban women love me, love me. You know, so I think it was, it's a little too probably late to be trying to appeal to suburban women. And here in Georgia, we saw that really hit us in 2018. And, and um, um, so if anything keeps me up at night, that's the one uh, demographic group. Eric, what about you, a group that the Republicans could have had a stronger relationship with? 
Well, you know, just playing off of what Corey said too, I, I, I do think that the president, uh, the accomplishments during his four years have just been tremendous. And I think a lot of it has been glossed over because of the, the pandemic, at least this past year. But when you look at the lowest unemployment, whether it was African-Americans, Hispanic Americans, women, um, you know, the, the economy was in a good place. But unfortunately, you know, politics is about the now mm -hmm. and we're dealing with this pandemic. And one area that has been a struggle for President Trump, because it's it's who he is, is empathy is just not something that, you, you know, he's really good at. And he's running against someone that is very good at demonstrating empathy. And I think that really impacts women. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about a voter group, I would say it's 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 women and and I know Corey and Julianne both know I am a huge proponent of getting more women involved in in Republican politics and have been involved in a national effort called Winning for Women, um, and I just think it's uh, it's unfortunate because as I said at the start the the policies and the substance of what the president did has done the last four years has been really quite remarkable. But um, I think it's this empathy piece that's creating the biggest problem. Mm, empathy. Julianne, you'll get the last word. A group, a demographic that the Republicans could have had a stronger relationship with in addressing issues. Well, I think most definitely it's women. But I do want to say this. Um, if there is one thing that Republicans need to understand, it is, okay, gone are the days of the 72-hour last-ditch effort for voting. Gone are the days of just the October surprises because they don't work anymore. Um, on September 14th, absentee ballots started uh, the mail out here in Georgia. Over 70 million Americans have already voted absentee by now. Um, on the 12th of October, early voting started in Georgia. More than half of the people in Georgia that voted in 2016 have already voted in Georgia. Mm -hmm. This is largest amount of people that have ever voted in a Georgia election. So if Republicans need to take something away from 2020, they need to take this. They need to start campaigning earlier and they need to start it a lot stronger, a lot earlier, because by the time mid-October gets here and you have your October surprises, it's kind of late for them. So they really, really need to ramp up the get out the vote efforts a lot earlier like as in July and August. Mm. We shall see. Julianne Thompson, president of the Atlanta-based MSN Strategies, Eric Tannenblatt, global chair of public policy and regulation at Denton's law firm, and Corey Ruth, CEO of Mergence Global and International Consulting Firm. Thank you all for joining the program today, providing your analysis. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.